This is The Guardian. Hello, I'm Alex Gorman and you are listening to Save for Later, a podcast where we swim all the way to the bottom of the internet, find a single pearl and bring it back up, hoping that our lungs don't decompress in the process. I'm Steph Harmon. And I'm Michael Sutton. Today we're talking about the album on everyone's lips. I am, of course, talking about Red, Taylor's version by Taylor Swift. We're also going to be talking about the Swifties, but also all the other fandoms that obsessively mine the internet for little breadcrumbs. And we're not alone. We're going to have some help from Sultan of Stan, Brody Lancaster, to help us pick up on that trail of crumbs. And then something's happening on TikTok that none of us can explain. So we have a special treat, an extra guest, Maggie Zhao, to teach us how to practice self-care ironically. And if you stick around till the end of the podcast, you'll be hearing what's topping our list this week. Usually there are any number of people I would recommend get off Twitter, but this week, one in particular. Jake Gyllenhaal, his ex-girlfriend of three months, Taylor Swift, has re-recorded and re-released her album Red, Taylor's version. And the breakup anthem she wrote about him all too well has a new 10-minute extended cut packed with more gory details that her fans are obsessively poring over and getting furious at him about. And it's made us start thinking about fandoms. Taylor Swift obviously has a huge one, but she's not the only person to, and we've brought in an expert to discuss them with us, Brody Lancaster, who is a writer, editor, Guardian Australia contributor, podcaster, author, basically everything. You are a pop culture expert, Brody. Happy Taylor Swift week. <laughs> Happy Taylor's version week. Um, Brody, you're the only person who comes to my mind when I think about fandoms. But before we get too, too deep into that, I do want to just ask a few questions about this release and the release of the song All Too Well and especially the fandom surrounding that. I'm hearing things about like little clues. There's a 13-minute short film around it. There's something about like a scarf that fans are going crazy about. The thing is that Taylor Swift has kind of created this climate or like this expectation that like everything she says and does is taken literally. Mm. Everything is deliberate. There's no item of clothing or prop or lyric or reference that doesn't mean something else. In real life, it was a navy scarf, but in the lore of All Too Well, it is a red scarf that Taylor Swift allegedly left at Maggie Gyllenhaal's house and Jake Gyllenhaal still carries with him. Left in my scarf there at your sister's house and you've still got it in your drawer even now. In the All Too Well short film, there is a fight going on in a car, which there were paparazzi photos during their relationship of him kind of yelling at the paparazzi while Taylor Swift kind of like shrunk in the passenger seat. There's a keychain with the phrase, fuck the patriarchy on it. There's a line about her getting older while his next lovers all stay the same age. Jake Gyllenhaal is now dating a woman who is also in her 20s. Jokes, 
I have to say so much Jake Gyllenhaal hatred on my timeline of this entire week, including like I think one of my favorite tweets that I saw was Jake Gyllenhaal made a tweet saying, I had a great night in Nashville and someone photoshopped a reply being like, and you're last. I feel kind of bad for Jake because like the the original version of this song, the one that came out on Red in 2012, you know, it was just kind of like a beautiful breakup anthem and I kind of, it's it's coloured differently now. It also feels like there's a bit of fan service going on too, though, right? I mean, this particular song was one of the all-time Swifties' favourites on Red, which is an all-time Swift album. It's like her first crossover album into pop, and this particular song represented so much to so many people about why they love Swift. So it feels like she's doing this one particularly for the fans. Yeah, the the breadcrumb trail is has turned into kind of like a pastry case. I just saw on TikTok she's released a, another music video from Red that just came out today and it's directed by Blake Lively and in it there's kind of this big tiered wedding cake or this big tiered cake and there are these icons on it and there's five red roses and so five obviously means this album and if you add up all the numbers on the top layer of the cake it relates to this 150 and 150 days from now is a Friday that's when she'll release 1989 Taylor's version. (laughs) Is that like Really what she's doing or are these fans just reading way too much into it and trying to cue in on their way through it? I think it's a mixture of both. I think she planted seeds and when fans either created theories, she told them she was right or she hinted that they were right or she did things, you know, say someone says Taylor Swift's going to release an album on March 13th. That might not be her plan, but she might go, oh, that fits really well. <laughs> and like all the, that'll, that'll make sense. So, may, you know, who knows? Maybe she's adjusting things on her end. But of course, there are other fandoms out there. The Swifties haven't quite taken over the internet just yet. And Brody, you are in a fandom for a certain band. Tell us more. It's a little band called One Direction. Not sure <laughs> if you've heard of them. Never. It's kind of wild to think... It's been over 10 years now, or like maybe it's been 10 years since I first discovered One Direction. And for your listeners' reference, I'm 31 years old. So I was definitely not a teenager when I discovered One Direction, but I was one of a heaving fan base of adult One Direction fans. Yeah, once once they suck you in, it's really hard to get out. So I completely relate to, I mean... I'm not so much a clue follower, but I I definitely relate to kind of like that power of fandom. Can you describe the sucking in process? Like how does one find themselves enmeshed in a fandom? Was it a conscious decision? It was, I think for me, it was seeing they were very big on Tumblr and Tumblr was kind of designed in a way that you could, I mean, like a lot of social media sites are, you could very much find the communities that had a shared joke or a shared language or references. And I saw some of my friends kind of referring to things that I thought were funny or cute or, you know, when it comes to One Direction, it's all funny and cute. (laughs) And um, I actually asked asked a friend of mine for an explainer and she sent me at the time kind of their top like 20 videos that, uh, you know, would have had maybe like a million views each. And there are gestures within the band. There was, you know, a a long running conspiracy that two of the members were secretly in love with each other and always signaling to each other or looking at each other or touching each other in certain ways in interviews. And so once you 
kind of buy into it. Once you um, decide that that is what your truth is, then um, everything you see reinforces it as fact. And yeah, you go, you go really deep. <laughs> How deep did you go? Like, what do you think was the moment that was the peak moment of Brody's 1D fandom? I mean, look, I went to a lot of concerts. I wasn't, I wasn't the type to kind of you know, I feel like there's, there's passive levels of fandom of just enjoying the music. And then there are the levels of like changing your social media name to like mm-hmm. Brody styles or something. <laughs> like I never went that far, but I do, I mean, I'm looking at a bookshelf and I have a printed copy of a fan fiction that I bought from the internet wow. that was public published under like just the author's initials because they didn't. I didn't know people bought fan fiction. I thought people just wrote it. Me neither. <laughs> Fifty Shades exists. And again, I saw I saw people referring to it. I wanted to know more, so I I bought it. Can you talk a bit more about that emotional connection? I mean, obviously they're living in your brain rent free, but how do you feel sort of as an individual about, I guess, these other very famous individuals who may or may not know you exist as evidenced by Taylor Swift retweeting you or wearing a T-shirt that says, no, it's Becky? <laughs> I'm very self-conscious about it in a way because I feel like it, for people who can't relate to it, it does seem like a kind of delusional exercise. Does it feel like a friendship or like a, like being in love? I think for a lot of people it did. For me, I think probably because of my age, like I've tried to explain to people that like my relationship to Harry Styles is not just that I think he's really beautiful and handsome. It's like he is at once my son and my little brother and my boyfriend and like a kid that I babysat who's now Mm. like really sweet and grown up. Like it's all, it's kind of maternal, but it's also like, horny, Mm -hmm. but like, it's all of these things all at once. I feel like those two words shouldn't be used in the same sentence, but. (laughs) (laughs) They were too close together. That was. (laughs) Would you say it's an Oedipal relationship? (laughs) Look, I'm not his mum, so it's fine. (laughs) Um, I'm really keen to hear, Steph and Alex, have you guys had any experience with fandoms in the past? Mine predates the internet. Um, It was extremely passionate and extremely misjudged affair with Ronan Keating in my head Um, (laughs) when he was in Boyzone and I was, I think, like 11 or 10 or something. um, I remember I'd been into Boyzone since I was seven and then I'd lived in KL where it was okay to love Boyzone. There was a lot of sort of implant of British culture in KL. I moved to Australia where it was only okay to love Jebediah. (laughs) Didn't understand (laughs) the difference between musical genres and what I was saying about myself by declaring my love and uh, humiliated myself by coming to school one Monday after Boyzone had been on a promo tour of Australia. They'd done a signing at Westfield. I'd gotten a signature and I went to school. I just moved back from KL, was trying to make friends, went to school, brought my little Ronan Keating signature, tried to show it to all of my friends and yeah, it was one of the most humiliating mornings of my life. Uh, Alex, you go. (laughs) Well, I've never kind of loved a band to the point of fandom or finding a community through them. But I definitely understand the fan fiction element of it because I spent most of my teens reading and writing homoerotic Harry Potter fan fiction. Who were you shipping? 
Who wasn't she shipping? Yeah, all of them. Like I kind of, I like an interplay between dark and light. So very much like kind of uh, like ha- maybe a Harry Draco vibe. That's the classic. Mm, that is. Or even like a Harry Young Tom Riddle, like really deep, weird power play mm-hmm. stuff. Like a little bit of Ginny and Cho because... Honestly, I think that relationship should basically be canon. <laughs> the idea that people were reading or writing fan fiction for pop music or Harry Potter or anything that wasn't queer is, like, shocking to me. Like a a Fifty Shades or a After, which is a series of Harry Styles fan fiction that has been made into several bad movies and that it's, like, straight. I'm like, don't you get enough of this? Like, this is not for you. <laughs> Well, I feel like this mention of queerness is very interesting because I think, embarrassingly, I was extremely deep in the Vampire Weekend fandom when I was in high school (laughs) for, I'd say, maybe like four or five years of my life. And most of the people in that fandom have now ended up being queer journalists, specifically, which... That is a very specific <laughs> group of people. Yeah. <laughs> to little surprise of many. I feel like like it was, like it there was always a correlation there. But um, I definitely also did write Vampire Weekend fan fiction. And I actually, I was recently digging through my old emails because I remember that I, I had written a piece of Vampire Weekend fan fiction for a school assessment. <laughs> and I'd submitted it to a teacher like via email, being like, hey, here's a draft if you want to have a quick read of my creative writing assessment. How horny was it? It was surprisingly not horny, but I actually have a piece of here. It was not horny. It was only incredibly, incredibly wanky. And there was a part of it that was definitely plagiarised from The Great Gatsby. (laughs) When when you say you have heaps of it here, do you mean heaps of it in front of you that you can read for us right now? Oh, my God. I will be reading out to you the last paragraph of this fan fiction, which is titled Diplomat's Son after an iconic song on their second album, Contra. This fanfiction stars Rostam, a queer multi-instrumentalist and producer who's now out of the band, and Ezra Koenig, famous frontman. Let's go. Rostam would have laughed had it not been for Ezra's piercing stare. He looked at him with a quiet <laughs> conviction, a reluctant resolution, his unfaltering green eyes betraying a certain <laughs> sadness. Wait, if they're unfaltering, <laughs> how can they betray Let's him? Let's not go deep into the details here. <laughs> Rostam pushed back the unwelcome teardrops with which wetted his lashes and closed his eyes, <laughs> imagining the shirts with stripes and scrolls and plaids and coral and apple green. And this is Grey Gatsby plagiarism now. All the while whispering, never leave me. <laughs> the shirts that had been soaked with his tears as he cried stormily at the bliss of the moment. When he next opened his eyes, Ezra was gone. He was a diplomat's son. It was 81. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, Michael. I am so thankful to my year 12 teacher for having to read this. And apologies. I mean, it wasn't not horny. It wasn't not horny. Like (laughs) It was yearning, which is like, which is what the best fan fiction is until the sex. Thank you so much. (laughs) If we move back to Taylor Swift for a second, she is someone who rewards her fans. But I think on the flip side of that, 
it almost feels as if she often does use her fans as her first marketers as well. I'm talking like those diehard fans who she invites to like exclusive listening parties and who her mum famously pulls out of concerts to like take backstage and meet Taylor and then that becomes its own kind of like diffusive fandom marketing, like if you will. I feel like this is something that, that you know, big corporations are also using. Like Marvel often does this with diehard fans and inviting them to premieres and exclusive events. I'm wondering like... Do you think that the artist-fan relationship, like how much does the artist get out of the fan as much as the fan gets out of the artist? Mm, I mean, it's definitely a reciprocal thing for sure. You know, Taylor Swift, she's been known to kind of like follow fans on social media for Mm. years. Like she was a famous Tumblr lurker. (laughs) And then when there would be like a new album campaign, fans would get like gift boxes at their door that referenced you know, kind of specific personal stuff that they had written or posted about. And by sharing that she had done that, that kind of inspires other people to invest in her in the same way because maybe they'll be next. Maybe they'll be the next person to be plucked out. But also if you're invited to the first listening party of a new Taylor Swift record at her house where she's baked you cookies or something, are you going to say anything bad about her music? You know, like Mm. that's your friend then. But some of this stuff can turn pretty toxic too, right? I mean, fans aren't all good. I've read quite a few pieces from journalists, for instance, talking about how they no longer can write about K-pop. Brody, you have your own experience with this also. I mean, you wrote a cover story for Vogue about Billie Eilish, which was all about fandom and her relationship with the internet. What was that like? It's made me kind of fearful, if I'm honest, when it, when it comes to writing about pop music. I went I downloaded my Twitter archive, deleted all my old tweets and went private just because you never know what you're going to say Mm. that someone or some fan group is going to take umbrage with and kind of decide to destroy your life. You know, I saw it happen to Pitchfork editor Jill Mapes last year. She reviewed Folklore, which was Taylor Swift's kind of lockdown Mm. record, her foray into quote-unquote indie music. Um, released on a major label and, <laughs> you know, they they gave it a very generous score. Jill's review was kind of glowing of the parts that she liked. It was a really well-reasoned review. I agreed with most of what she said and the Taylor Swift fans found her home address, her phone number, shared photos of her and her partner online. Like it got really bad. I think she's still private on Twitter And she's an incredible critic and the fans kind of, the conversations that I saw, the people kind of like leading this charge couldn't accept that what they were doing was really truly hateful and like cruel and vicious because they were coming from a place of what they saw as love and defending Taylor Swift against a bad Metacritic average. I mean, there's a really positive side too, even for the artist. We've seen recently... Britney Spears crediting her fans for being there for her during this horrible conservatorship trial and the period leading up to it. And she's talked about, you know, how important it was to know how much support she had. And there's also been a lot of writing about the transformative power of K-pop fans in particular. I mean, not just to send anything that a K-pop band does up the top of the charts, but the BTS army, they, they managed to raise like $1 million for the Black Lives Matter movement. They flooded a White Lives Matter hashtag so that it became inaccessible. They registered a huge amount of tickets for a Trump rally, which ended up being populated by barely anyone. So there's like, you know, it seems like there's there's some good, actual, powerful things that come out of them as well. Yeah, I think 
being a fan on the internet has kind of shown people what can happen when you kind of come together around a common goal, whether it is driving a song to the top of the charts or yeah, truly embarrassing Donald Trump and (laughs) his entire team. (laughs) What about for you? I mean, what was the most powerful thing that being part of the, of the fandom you were part of brought you? In preparation for this, I kind of dug out some of my old writing on fandom and there was this piece that I did for Rookie RIP where after Zayn left the band, Rookie asked me to kind of go out to my fan community and collect together some handwritten like goodbye notes for mm. him. And so like there are people in there who grew up as like young Muslim Americans who saw in Zayn, you know, this mainstream image that they never saw for themselves. I have two friends who... Mm met online in the One Direction community and are getting married and I took them. I got all these free tickets to a show once and I was like, do you guys want to go see One Direction? To get They'd never been to a show together. The community that it brought me was like really special as well. I think it was the first time that I was aware of you as a big One Direction fan was when Zayn left and I remember your tweets and being like, this is a really hard time. I think I still have screenshots somewhere from the day that he left because of the time difference. I woke up and it had already happened. And, you know, I woke up to like all these mentions on Twitter of people Mm. checking on me or wanting to know how I was. And before I even knew what was happening, I immediately was like, something's (laughs) happened to Zane. I thought he was dead. And so it was almost a relief to find out that he wasn't. (laughs) Oh my God. So, I mean, having people who understood and didn't, laugh or think that it was silly to care that helped Brody thank you so much for coming on the pod and explaining all of that to us and sharing such like a lovely perspective on fandoms and what they can bring my pleasure I'm it's my campaign for justice for grown adult (laughs) fans of teenage (laughs) boy bands bye Brody don't get cancelled don't get cancelled is actually a perfect way to end this podcast I gotta say We are going to take a break, but coming up, we are going on our stupid little walk for our stupid little mental health. But today, it's camp. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Okay, this is a segment where we get people to explain parts of the internet we don't understand, but they have to do it very quickly. Today, we have resident Gen Z writer and producer from Refinery29 and co-host of the Culture Club podcast, Maggie Zhao, who has just written an article about an ironic wellness trend, and she's going to talk us through how people are making wellness camp. Oh, I am. Thank you so much for having me. How do you do wellness ironically? I know. I feel like we're going to have some grammar people at home shaking their heads and being like, that's not the proper use of irony. So let me take you back to where it began. It all started with a 24-year-old creator on TikTok. I'm about to fuck around and start doing like really healthy habits, ironically. Her name's Daniela Pires from Texas, and she posted a video where she explained her thought process. And she was like, I'm going to start waking up early and going for walks because it's, quote unquote, ironic and camp. Because I think that's the only way I'm going to do them. No, because it's ironic and it's camp. And then she was saying that it will eventually become her routine. <laughs> I'm I'm a genius. She kind of likened it to starting to use phrases as a joke, but eventually it's not a joke anymore. For instance, I accidentally always say lol in real life, mm-hmm. which started out yeah. as a joke. It's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she says that waking up at 5am is camp and that I guess wellness generally is camp. Does this mean Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> is the new Babadook? I mean, obviously everything is camp nowadays. Like literally I can't think of a single thing that I do in my life that I wouldn't classify as camp, but maybe that's a problem. Mm, there's like, there's nothing more performative than wellness, I think. She even says doing these wellness practices is basically performance art. So how many people are doing this now? Like she started it, but is anyone else following in her footsteps? Yeah. So her original video has over 2 million views. Thankfully, I saw a TikTok that changed my life. The idea is you start doing really healthy habits, ironically. And my favorite thing is looking at the comments and seeing how other people are implementing this into their life. I'll read out some now. So I make my bed, but only if it's funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) Or today I studied for like six hours. Ironically, I was cosplaying Rory Gilmore from Gilmore Girls, but in a queer camp way. (laughs) I don't understand how you can cosplay Rory Gilmore and not have it be in a queer camp way. (laughs) I know. I know. It's just two and two. It goes hand in hand. I feel like the battle between earnestness and irony on the internet has been a hard-fought one. It feels like there's pushes and pulls in one direction and then the other and we get too earnest, irony comes in to save us, we get too ironic, someone feels really hard about it. I mean, this this self-care ironic thing is interesting because it almost feels like it's becoming sincere again to me, but people have certainly been satirizing it. There's an Instagram account that I follow and so do 850 million other people called affirmations with three f's which is purely wellness phrases and sort of positive affirmations that are executed in an incredibly haunting and nonsensical manner that you can then buy as merch t-shirts which seems to be their, their side hustle with that but it's things like A picture of 50 Cent staring meaningfully into the camera, pointing his finger right at you with the phrase, I am not a lunch break loner. (laughs) So, I mean, is this just like shitposting? I mean, we talked about shitposting on an earlier ep. This is, it feels like the same kind of thing. It's certainly shitposting, but it is a very specific 
wellness genre of shit posting. So on another one, there's a photograph of, uh, I think, I believe it's Shishi Hadid, but it could be another pillow-lipped supermodel. And she's, it's got her partially faded out. It's got a beautiful sunset. And the text over the top is, I did not cause my parents' divorce. (laughs) (laughs) So it's sort of... Yes, it's kind of shitposting, but shitposting is meaningless, whereas this seems to me much more like a hearted critique of both wellness culture and to some extent also therapy culture. Well, I think it's very interesting that you mentioned therapy culture because on Twitter as well, obviously, we've seen these screenshots go so incredibly viral of people having weird, funny, maybe inappropriate text conversations with their therapists, many of which are now faked um, because they've become so (laughs) constantly, consistently viral that that people are literally faking having conversations about like Harry Styles with their therapist, for example, speaking of fandoms. (laughs) But I think it really speaks to this idea that mental health discourse has is at an all-time high. Um, mm. And wellness discourse, like, like people want to be seen as well and or unwell or, like, playing with this idea of, like, wellness to go viral. Yeah, more and more people are sharing their own therapy, but at the same time, real-life therapy sessions are becoming a whole genre of programming. I'm thinking shows like Couples Therapy and Where Should We Begin? So therapy is hitting the mainstream in a way it didn't used to. And at the same time, people are identifying with their mental health issues or their diagnoses on social media. And that's great, obviously, for destigmatization. But when people start competing over who has it worse, in a joking way, mostly, it kind of sets wellness up as the opposite or even the enemy. Is that why people are being so snarky about it? I adore that take. And I actually talked to a cyber psychology researcher, Ash King, about this. And it was very interesting to see her point of view because she was like this ironic take on wellness. Shouldn't be written off, but she does ask where this cynicism is directed at. Like, who are we poking fun at with this trend? And at the end, um, she was kind of saying that the trade-off of short-term humour in place of long-term personal growth probably doesn't tackle, you know, these deeper self-critical attitudes we hold towards ourselves. But of course, you don't have to be someone who's struggling to benefit from some of the stuff that wellness espouses, albeit in a really inaccessible way. I mean, some of the things that people are kind of doing ironically as self-care is just the advice that your GP would give you for how to exist as a person in the world if you'd like to try and make it past 55. Given that, I'm wondering, the people who have started this ironic self-care thing, is it actually working for them? I can't believe it, but yeah, for some people it is. Another comment I saw was, I did it as a joke. Now I have a two-hour morning routine, lol. (laughs) Um, The creator of this video in an interview said that it's almost like the Gen Z take on fake it till you make it. And like, this is working for me. Like, I think I fixed myself. Like, I put on my silly little fanny pack, go take a walk on my lunch in the sun to get some vitamin D, ironically. Because another wellness trend that's running parallel to this, which I think is um, definitely more popular than this ironic trend, is the that girl trend. Have we heard about this? I actually haven't, no. I have seen the occasional reference to that girl. Not to be confused with that boy, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit, what up? (laughs) Different planes, different planes of existence. But yes, that girl is that desire to be literally that girl, that girl who's got her life in order. That girl 
The girl who wakes up early to make a beautiful green smoothie. The girl who makes her bed. The girl who keeps an aesthetic journal. The girl who eats an aesthetic. So is Emily Marico that girl? Oh, completely. Definition of that girl. Um, and it's so funny because that is so popular at the moment, yet it is still so unattainable for some. And that's why it's quite funny to see both of these kind of fight each other, these two very earnest approaches to wellness versus this very ironic one. Do you think self-care is chuggy? A little bit, but it's so hard because I ha- I embrace the self-care. I embrace the shallow, superficial nature of it. I love me, my bath bombs and my and my alone time. But we obviously also know that it goes way beyond that. It is saying those, prioritizing yourself, etc. So a little bit chuggy, but I'm embracing it. Ironically, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and explaining that to us, Maggie. It's been a delight. It's been illuminating. We have loved to have you. We are thanking you, but only ironically. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. We are at the final bit of the podcast where we talk about what is getting us through this week. Alex, what is top of your list? So top of my list this week is The Shrink Next Door, which is a show on Apple TV. It is based on a podcast and it is true crime, but it's true crime that does two impossible things simultaneously. First of all, no one dies. That's kind of a spoiler warning, but if you have complicated feelings about true crime like I do, it's nice to know that this is about something criminal that doesn't end in murder. And the other impossible thing it does is show us Paul Rudd looking old. Finally, (laughs) as he deserves. It also has Will Ferrell and my fave Catherine Hahn in it. It's very New York, very Jewish, and quite a lot of fun. My top of the list um, is the new Beach House EP. It's called Once Twice Melody. Um, it's part one of four um, of an upcoming album. So th- I feel like they're, they're, they're really breadcrumbing us now, like much like their predecessors. Um, we are being drip-fed very slowly. I'm expecting clues. I'm back to being a Beach House stan. Life is good. It's 2014. <laughs> I've regressed. <laughs> Mine's a little controversial uh, because I was reading this book at the pub the other day and a woman came over to tell me how much she hated the author. Um, And I know that there's a lot of hate for him online, but I truly think this is a fantastic book. It's Franzen's Crossroads. Uh, Of course it is. It is a beautiful read from a guy you may or may not like the persona of, uh, but is undeniably just a really great writer. And I've been sunk in this book's world for the last week and I'm loving it. If you like the show, you should rate and review us in whatever podcast player you happen to be listening on. And if you're looking for more episodes, just Google us or go to theguardian.com forward slash saved for later. We have a website now. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert. The music was handcrafted by Joe Koning. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. We'll catch you next week. 